Father, we do pray that I may decrease, that you may increase, that your spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds, would teach us, would be with us this morning, that, Father, we would be good listeners of your spirit. And I say that abundantly theologically. The Holy Spirit bears witness through his word. And so I pray that we would be so attentive and come under your word this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to admit, I prayed with my eyes open. I just caught him on screen up here. I didn't realize that. That wasn't that way last week. I hope that doesn't distract. This, this whole prayer of I must decrease is getting harder and harder. <laughs> I got long hair and I'm on screen. I'm not used to this at all. This is, this is not what we went to seminary for. I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and we are concluding our series this morning uh, on cultivating intimacy with God, looking at the Psalms, the prayer book, the worship book of the Old Testament, and this morning we are looking at Psalm 99. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 99 declares, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I normally don't get into reality TV shows. You can ask Abby, that's not my favorite genre. Some of them, Alexia, I like Dancing with the Stars. And one that I started watching uh, over these last, what, eight weeks? How long have we been apart? Seven, eight, nine weeks, something like that? Long time, right? One that I, that I watched with Abby that we enjoyed, and there was a reason behind this, you'll hear in just a second, was The Voice. And here's why I started watching The Voice over the past however many weeks. You know, we support a missionary, Jonathan Iverson. And I have known the Iverson family for years and years. They're kind of stalwarts in PCA family. Carl, I bet you you knew Bill. And Dan Iverson, uh, the kind of patriarch, the fan, you know, head is a missionary in Japan. Their son, Micah, was on The Voice, was a finalist, and finished in fifth place on The Voice. Unbelievable singing voice, unbelievable presence. And the thought, and here's how it pertains to what we're looking at in Psalm 99 this morning. King Jesus will not be without a witness to his glory. One of the things, and I was kind of following Jonathan, Micah's brother, as he was posting on Facebook on this, and one of the things Jonathan pointed out with this is that all five finalists 
were evangelical, gospel-believing Christians. Now, you want to talk about the providence of God leading to have God's name. And also, who would have thought, through the voice, God's name is going to be exalted? The one who won, and I was, I have to admit, I did things I've never done before. I downloaded the voice app, and every week, <laughs> Jonathan or Dan would post. Now, this is, Dan is a missionary for three years in Japan, and he's like, vote for my son ten times, and there I am. <laughs> and I'm going, Evie, how do you sign into this thing? <laughs> and I'm doing this. God will have glory and be exalted at his footstool, holy as he, in any way. You know, it reminds me of Jesus going through and what he said, even if his name, if you all don't praise his name, guess what? The rocks are going to cry out. You do recognize Jesus is Lord and he will be praised. That every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we're concluding our series this morning on the Psalms and on cultivating intimacy with God by looking at the fact that ultimately the Lord is King. Who is the Lord? He is the King. I remember being in a Doctor of Ministry class at RTS Orlando 10, 12 years ago. I don't remember exactly the year. And Richard Pratt was the teacher at this time. And Richard said, and this just kind of stuck with me, he said, everyone has lost the punch of Christianity because we have lost the story of Christianity. And he went on to say that the story of Christianity, the meta-narrative, the big picture, is the fact of, that Jesus is king. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, the lordship of God, is the story of the Bible. The story of Christianity is the story of the kingdom of God, and what we need to get a hold of is the reality of the kingdom of God. And so from Psalm 99, my proposition to you this morning is simply this. The Lord is king. And from this psalm, we're going to look at it in two, two perspectives. Very simple. You're taking notes on being easy on your hand this morning. We're going to look at the fact of his kingship, and we're going to look at the character of his kingship. In other words, the reality that he is king, and what is his kingship like? How would you characterize it? Verses 1 through 5 talk about the fact of his kingship. Look at the text with me. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king and his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Very interesting as you go through this section of the Psalms. In Psalm 93, 97, and this one, they all begin with a very simple but a concrete declaration. The Lord reigns. Can you understand why in the Proverbs it talks about the fear of the Lord is, we're talking Christianity 101, the foundation step, the beginning of wisdom. You don't go on to the deeper things before you tremble at the lordship and the kingship of God. 
The Lord reigns, let the peoples, and notice the plural there, the peoples, that's everyone, tremble. If your beginning point is not trembling, if we're so certain, so assured that we're not trembling before the Lord, you don't get his kingship. The call, and this is, and I didn't mean to step on Rick's toes, he already did the call to worship, but this is like another call to worship. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. You are being summoned in the, to the presence of the king to come before him. It's a very simple, concrete declaration, followed by the call for all peoples, all nations to respond. Verse 2 says he is exalted over all peoples. So in other words, the call to worship is a universal call. That's why Paul and Philippians say, every knee, the atheist's knee, will bow. The atheist's tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, I don't know where you might be with the Lord right now. This has been a very challenging time. This has been a tough time, and it continues to be. Make no mistake about it, challenges still come before us. But here's the fact and the reality. God reigns. He's in charge. He is in control. He calls the shots. Our times are in his hands. Christianity is not a democracy. God is not your co-pilot. The story of Christianity is not a democracy. It is an imperial model with God as king. I love the fact I am grateful for our country. You know, this is Memorial Day weekend, and I think we should be absolutely thankful. And I am grateful for everyone who not only served, but everyone. Memorial Day means in memoriam, in memory. So it's not just service, but those who gave their lives for our country. And I'm grateful. And I think gratitude and thankfulness is a major part of the biblical story. But I have to challenge us in something about our discipleship. You know, the American story, and there's so many blessings to this. And enjoy the blessings. They're gifts of God. But you know, as it says in our declaration, the inalienable right or to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Let's examine ourselves a little bit and ask ourselves a challenging question under the rubric of the Lord reigns and Christianity is not a democratic model, it's an imperial model. What story governs your life? Is it the American story or is it the biblical story? Because the biblical story doesn't say that we have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, and this may be quite the opposite, he said, if any of you would come after me. In other words, Jesus' evangelism is not, do you want to accept me into your heart? Jesus' evangelism, his conversion, is if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus' evangelistic call is to die to ourselves. The biblical story is not you have these rights. The biblical story is come and die. 
You know, I quote Jack Miller all the time, and you know Jack Miller who started missionary, pastor, started World Harvest Mission, now Surge Ministry, said, cheer up, you're worse than you think. Cheer up, you're more loved than you could ever imagine. You know, he had a third cheer up that I'm afraid sometimes we pastors stop short at number two, because he had a third cheer up. If you go and listen to him and listen to his talks and listen to his sermons and what he was saying, he would say, cheer up, come and die. It's a great way to come to life. Now see, we may be struggling with that. We may get mad at God with that. And let me assure you, none of this throws him. He knows, what does Psalm 139 say? He knows what we're thinking before we even, does that ever boggle your mind? God knows what I'm going to think next Thursday. Part of me kind of wants, well, let me in on that. What am I going to be thinking about next Thursday? So do you think our anger at God, our doubts, our struggles, our fears, our anxiety, do you think any of that throws God? Or he goes, no, I'm surprised. How could you feel that way? Part of cultivate, cultivating intimacy with him as king is learning to be honest with ourselves. To deal with our hearts truthfully. Now look with me at the end of verse 1. The second parallel line says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Notice again the language. He's enthroned. Who gets enthroned? Kings. Only kings are enthroned. Here's the imperial model again. And this refers to the cherubim that are depicted over the Ark of the Covenant that is kept in the most intimate places of the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. These cherubims are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. Exodus chapter 25, verse 20, we read, The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim to be. Look at that. They face each other towards the cover. In other words, as Moses is receiving instructions for the tabernacle, he's also given instructions by God concerning the Ark of the Covenant. And the whole point of the Exodus here was that the Lord would live with his people. That the Lord would commune with his people. He was making a way, giving access to his people. In other words, union, communion with God, intimacy is the goal of salvation. And then verse 5 ends this section of the psalm, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. Holy is he. The same refrain that ends the whole psalm in verse 9. This theme of the psalm most certainly is the kingship, the holiness, the otherness, the uniqueness of Almighty God. The repetition of the refrain, holy is he, indicates that the Lord our God is holy. This is reminiscent of what Isaiah experienced when he entered the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, and he was confronted with the Lord's glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And you do realize this is our future. Rick read earlier in the service, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around, within, and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The focus of cultivating communion with the King is the Lord himself. Verse 3 says, let them praise you a great and awesome name. Loving God for who he is, not just what he gives you. Tim Keller says that we are to never go to God because he is useful, but go to God because he is beautiful. And going to him because he's beautiful, you'll find him useful as well, because you were created for him. You were built for union with him. But how often do we go to God to get peace, to get blessings, to get healing, to get things? Now, God may dispose those things upon us. We'll see in a second the character of his kingship is that he is good in an unfathomable way. But is that your motive for going to him? Are you going to him because he's useful? Or are you going to him because he's beautiful? Are you captivated with who he is in and of himself so that if all he gives you for the rest of your life is nothing but suffering, you will be able to say, I've never been more in love with the Lord Jesus. I'm not there yet. God wants truth in the inner being. I have a long way to go. But let's be a people that goes to God because of who he is in himself, because he's beautiful. Let's pray and pray some more and pray some more. And then when we're done praying some more, why to get more of God? Because God built us and he redeemed us for union and communion with him who is love. So what kind of king is he? The character of his kingship. Verse 6 begins, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. Notice what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, let's look into our past. Let's remember. Let's look into our history. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship that God is holy. In looking to... The past, what does he look to? He looks to the Exodus narrative to see how the Lord's kingship was reflected and how he dealt with his people. He begins with Moses and Aaron, and then he adds Samuel. In Exodus 24, we read that he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So here are Moses and Aaron, along with Aaron's two eldest sons, and 70 elders summoned to meet with the Lord. And the psalmist is alluding to, teaching here, to focus on this access to the Lord. Moses and Aaron are both called priests. In other places, Moses is called a prophet and a priest. Aaron is the first high priest, and Samuel was the last judge. They all represented both God to Israel and Israel to God. Thus, 
all prayed, and all were spokesmen in both directions. They brought the people of Israel to God, and they spoke the word of God to the people of Israel. And notice the text. It said, they called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, God spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that they gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. Notice this about the character. What kind of king is God? God is a king who speaks. He is a king who wants to be known. He is a king who reveals himself. Obviously, we know that the ultimate place he speaks to us is in his word. He gives us his living word. But I want you to know that the Lord wants us to know him. He's a revealing God. The point of our life is communion with God. There's a Calvin historian and a Calvin scholar by the name of Matthew Meyer Bolton, and he's speaking of John Calvin, and he says this. He says, Calvin consistently crafts his ideas. So in other words, he speaks his theology for the sake of practical formation. And so ultimately for the sake of ongoing companionship and union with God in Christ. Listen to that again. Because if we think Calvin was this stoic, rigid theologian, we have him wrong. It says Calvin consistently crafts his ideas. And he crafts his beautiful theology for the sake. In other words, this is what his eyes are upon. This is his goal. This is his aim. Practical formation. Ultimately for the sake of ongoing companionship, friendship with the living God who makes himself known to us. And then you come to verse 4. That says, the king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. But I want you to notice something. What else does it say? You were an avenger of wrongdoings. So we need to now, we kind of reach a tension. God reveals himself. He wants union with us. He wants com communion with us. And yet he's a just God. He avenges wrongdoings. Three times in the text it says, holy is he. So in other words, if God is righteous, how can he have relationship with us? How can we become his beloved? Now remember what the psalmist is doing here. He's connecting this with the Exodus narrative. And in the heart of the Exodus narrative, you've got this whole incident of the golden calf. You remember that, you biblical scholars out there? You kind of remember Moses being up on the mountain and the people going, uh, he's been taking a little bit too much time up there. When's he going to come down? We're tired of this. We don't like it. Almost sounds like us, doesn't it, during this pandemic and stuff? We're a little tired of quarantining. We don't like that. Hmm. And so what do they do? Hopefully we didn't do this, but what do they do? Aaron, let's draft you. You're number two in command. Let's, and Aaron says, sure, throw all your gold in the fire, and let's, let's reject Moses, let's reject Yahweh, let's reject the Lord, and let's build a golden calf. 
God is a just God, an avenger of wrongdoings. God's also a jealous. You understand part of his love is jealousy, and he's jealous for communion with us? And he longs to be intimate and close and communion. So in chapter 35, when God passes by, gives Moses a very intriguing definition of himself. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellious and rebelliousness, and sin. And we go, yes! I like that part. Slow to anger, that's good. How slow can you be, God? Be very slow with me. I like slowness. Take your time. Forgiving rebelliousness, iniquity, sin. But discerning readers keep going. And verse 7 says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh-oh. Any of us not guilty? He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. So on the one hand, you've got this compassionate, forgiving, loving, slow to anger, long-suffering God. And on the other hand, you have the fact that he is just, that he is holy, that he cannot even look upon, that his eyes are too pure to look upon or to tolerate evil, that he will put all things to right. He is an avenger of all wrongdoings. His judgment is a real thing. No one gets away with anything. How does that tension get resolved? How is that tension solved? In John chapter 1, and friends, this is why we need to be excellent Bible readers of the whole Bible, not just pick and choose verses. Because John 1 alludes to the Exodus narrative. Because it says the Word, and we learned early, early on, the Word is Jesus. He's the Logos. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelling means tabernacle. Jesus is the true tabernacle. That's from the Exodus narrative. God wants to be known. Jesus makes him known. He tabernacled amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father has made him known. We said that the characteristic of God's kingship, his lordship, is he wants to be made known. Jesus makes God known in grace and in truth, revealing the full definition of God. And where do we see God's truth and grace come together more than anywhere else? On the cross. The cross is the clearest, greatest revelation of the glory of God you can get. Remember my quotes from Jack Miller? Cheer up, you are worse than you think. Okay, you want to know how worse we really are? Look at the cross. 
The cross is God's statement telling us how bad we really are. How there's no good that dwells within us. Cheer up. You are more loved than you could ever dream. Where do you see that most clearly? On the cross. The cross is the clearest revelation of how personally, how clearly, how passionately, how jealously God loves you. That he was willing to lose his son so that he would not lose you. Truth and grace kiss at the cross. God wants to be made known, and he's made known at the cross. From a New Testament perspective, we see that we as Christians united to Christ, can praise, exalt, and commune with God through Jesus, our divine warrior, who as our king will restore all things and make all things right. The good news is our life is hidden with Christ in God, and we can cultivate intimacy with this king because he's a king who comes near. He's a king who doesn't say, come up to me. He's a king who comes down to us and who draws us near to us. Let's pray. What an amazing king you are, Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into the world. We learn in your word, in your word, Father, that if I can illustrate it this way, you are a God who avenges wrong, so you dish out medicine. Medicine for our evil. Medicine that is your justice. But we amazingly learn that you are a king who takes his own medicine. Who takes upon himself the wrath of God. Father, may we be governed and controlled and gripped by the gospel story, the story of a king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.